welcome to this week's Wildlife Matters podcast with me, Nigel Palmer, your host. Well, Series 2 is here. What a great start we've had. Episodes 1 to 12 in Series 1. If you've missed them, they're still available on Catch Up. And we have had over 16,000 downloads of the podcast now, which is amazing. And thank you so much for your support. Also, you may notice a slight difference or hopefully an upgrade in audio quality now, thanks to our patrons for supporting us. We have some new equipment here in Wildlife Matters HQ Studio, which I hope you will get the benefits of in your listening pleasure. In today's episode one of series two, we are going to be looking at the animals that are being farmed for their fur. And also in Wildlife Matters Investigates, we will be exposing the cruelty of mink and otter hunting. That's all coming up in this week's A Wildlife Matters podcast. Welcome. Welcome to this week's Wildlife Matters Nature News, where we're going to be looking at the Grand National, the horse race that was run last weekend. So the Grand National is always one of horse racing's most intense and dramatic races. But this year, though, the level of drama intensified massively, and it was far from confined to the running of the race. You see, before the horses even made their way down to start the race, tension was building. And viewers, especially those on the television, were served up with a rather chunky slice of drama as pictures emerged of protesters at the famous racing venue. Prior to the meeting, there had been numerous murmurings regarding alleged protests that would happen in an attempt to disrupt and ultimately to stop the race from being run. With around 20 minutes before the 2023 Grand National was due to begin, animal rights activists attempted to enter the track, and some of them were successful, with one protester making their way onto the course in an attempt to fix herself to one of the obstacles, an attempt that was ultimately only foiled by a mixture of police, security personnel, and a whole load of other course officials. Other protesters were then pictured being arrested and escorted from the perimeter of the course. At one point, though, it did look as though the race may not be run. However, after a 14-minute delay, the race did eventually get underway. In a nutshell, the protests by animal rights activists have one aim, and that was to prevent the race from being run. Why? Well, following Saturday's events, a spokesperson for the group Animal Rising told Wildlife Matters that we disrupted the race for two reasons. One was to stop the race, to stop a horse dying, and two, to have a conversation about our broken relationship with animals. A spokesman for Peter UK brandished the Grand National as the most hazardous race in the world, and that isn't easy to argue with, let's be honest. We then saw Queen legend Sir Dr Brian May take to Instagram to question the ethics of racing horses for human entertainment. And as Brian said, let's not forget the money that is made by some people from this race. Of 
course, the British Horse Racing Authority condemned the protests, while trainer Sandy Thompson went further, blaming the protesters for causing the death of his horse, Hill 16, who sadly lost his life following a mid-race fall. Frankly, such accusations as those from Sandy Thompson are just plainly wrong, as the protesters were clearly trying to stop such an occurrence. Hill 16 was what was the only fatality of the Grand National Race itself, but two other horses lost their lives at the meeting, and one of them in another race run over the typically gruesome Grand National fences. Following the protests, 118 people have been arrested, 65 of which were taken into custody, and all of whom have reportedly been bailed pending further inquiries. The bottom line is, the decision makers within the so-called sport of horse racing, are they doing enough to ensure animal welfare or could more be done? It is well known that changes to the Grand National have been made in recent years, but following Saturday's drama, a spokesperson for the British Horse Authority said that recent improvements in welfare standards have helped reduce the horse racing death rate by a third over the last 20 years with the fatality rate of horses now standing at just 0.2%. Now this statement would suggest that in general horse racing is quite safe, although the Grand National is a very different prospect and that's what needs looking at. However, when you look at the facts, they tell us that five of the last 395 horses to run in the Grand National have sadly lost their lives and that is 1.27% and that is a lot higher than the 0.2% that the British Horse, Horse Racing Authority quoted. You could certainly argue that some of the Grand National changes have been tokenistic. Following the three horse deaths this year, it wouldn't be wrong to say that further quite drastic changes are needed. After all, it's clear to anyone with eyes that the national fences aren't the easiest for horses to consistently jump without the risk of something going tragically wrong. Following what happened on Saturday and the general conversation right now, it's highly likely that changes will continue to be made, which on reflection, we believe is entirely necessary. It's time to ensure that horse welfare is the top priority. And if that means stopping the race forever for the benefit of the horses, then that is what Wildlife Matters believes should be done. That has been this week's Wildlife Matters Nature News. Coming up next, get ready for Wildlife Matters Investigates, mink and otter hunting. And on this week's Wildlife Matters Investigates, we're going to be exposing the mink and otter hunting. Yeah, right. Still going on here in the UK. 
And as the first buds of spring begin to bloom and the days grow longer, the bloodlust of the fox and hare hunters turns towards the newest foe, the mink. Fox hunters are unchecked by law or by morality. Then between April and October, the Paxa hunters will prowl the riverbanks of the country in search of innocent creatures so they can kill them. Their quarry is made all the more despicable as it was formerly otters, but now they are a protected species in the UK. Despite this, only 17 hunts are recognised officially and the Hunt Saboteur Association is aware of over 20 more unregistered packs all eager to partake in this vile pastime. Every mink and otter hunt will have a pack of around 12 to maybe 16 hounds. There'll be a mix of otter hounds, fox hounds and other breeds. Besides hunting mink, they will kill anything they come across and there's concern that they are once again killing otters as the species are returning to more and more of the UK's rivers. And also with the establishment of beavers in rivers, there is a real fear that, that these two will be targeted, particularly in the River Otter as the Colmstock hunt uses this river regularly to hunt. Besides the wildlife killed by mink hunts, untold damage is done to the fragile flora and fauna along the riverbanks. Because mink tend to run to ground, there's lots of digging out going on. So the riverbanks and trees are just getting destroyed. Hunt members and supporters follow with the hounds carrying otter poles. These are six foot long wooden staves with a blade on one end. The hunters will mark their kills with a notch on their pole. Wow. These hunters will also bring with children with them, some of whom are dressed in hunt uniform to walk with the hunt as they conduct their killing sprees. Mink hunts are difficult to find as their meats are kept secret and the numbers of those involved are a lot smaller than those involved in fox hunting. You may be asking about why the hunts would take to hunting an American mink, a non-native species here in the UK's rivers. Well, mink are semi-aquatic mammals in fact, they're mustelids, the same family as weasels, ferrets, and uh, of course, otters. The species we have here in the UK are descended from the American mink, which were originally brought to the UK for fur farming back in the 1920s. Contrary to the popular beliefs, the animal rights campaigners of the 80s and 90s were responsible for the abundance of mink in our countryside, after releasing them from the hell of the fur farms, the non-native population took hold following inevitable escapes from the fur farms themselves. A little research soon reveals that mink were confirmed to be breeding in the UK as early as 1956. Back in 1978, the hunting of otters was banned in the UK and it was after this that the hunters decided to hunt the otter's fellow mustelode the American mink under the smokescreen of controlling an invasive non-native animal that was decimating waterfowls and other native species. Well, of course, the hunters used their usual mix of a sprinkling of truth with a healthy dose of spin 
as a way of explaining their actions. But as usual, the truth is, they just enjoy killing animals. Whilst hunting had an impact on the native otter populations, the most likely cause of the fall in otter numbers was the presence of potent insecticides from farms and agricultural use. These insecticides such as dieldrin and aldrin, which are toxic and now banned due to concerns about their impact on human health. So what does happen in a mink hunt? Well, the hunt pack includes a huntsman and they will employ terrier men and other staff to follow the hounds on foot as the hounds and often the huntsmen walk, wade and swim along the riverbanks where both mink and otters nest. One clear sign that you may be following an original otter pack is that they keep the purebred otter hounds. Foxhounds and Labrador foxhound crosses are also commonplace as in fox hunting, terriers are used to flush out the hunted animal should they go to ground. Whilst otters need large, variable and a very expansive territory, the mink prefer a relatively small area, often less than a single mile of riverbank. As a result, mink don't run or swim for long distances to escape the hunt hounds, but will try hiding in smaller holes in the bank or undergrowth and even by climbing trees. Very often a huntsman will knock a mink from a tree using their otter poles or by throwing sticks and mud. The poor mink ultimately falls to its death, either killed by the fall or more likely by a pack of hounds. When caught, a mink is killed by the hounds or terriers or by the huntsman with sticks or terrier men with spades and sometimes the mink are drowned. No animal should face death in such a brutal or barbaric way. And because mink breed in February and March, there is a high chance of entire litters of young being killed, either directly by the hunt or its hounds, or by losing their parents, where they're left then to die slowly of hunger or dehydration. Hunts will kill several mink in a single day. Mink hunts use terrier men with spades and terrier dogs to dig out any mink that goes to ground. The same cruel role terrier men play with their dogs in fox hunting. Most mink and otter hunts will hunt twice per week, often on a Wednesday and then again on the Saturday, just like fox hunting. Bank holidays, particularly May and August ones, are key dates for the mink hunts and frequently involve joint meets where two, three or even more packs will get to hunt for a day together. These mink hunts are very sedate compared to fox hunts and they'll often stop over at local pubs for lunch. Although why does any pub welcome such a despicable and antisocial group I will never know. So how do you stop a mink hunt? Well mink hunts are pretty elusive compared to fox hunts. Mink hunts have much smaller numbers and don't publicise their meat dates and areas. This can make them very difficult to find, but hunt savs have had increasing success in recent years based on their working knowledge of mink hunts known vehicles, favoured meat spots and kennel locations, along with anonymous tip-offs from members of the public. When in the field, monitors often face an agonising challenge immense terrain, 10 times larger than that of a fox hunting area, as well as vicious hostility from the hunt staff and terrier men. Hunt sabs stay vigilant and know that mink hunts don't like attention. 
and in fact many do pack up at the sight of Sabs arriving. Some frustrated hunts though do quickly turn to violence towards the Sabs who they feel are ruining their days of hunting. For hunt Sabs, mink hunts are stopped using similar tactics to the ones used to disrupt illegal fox and hare hunting. These may include things such as getting between the hounds and the hunted animal, covering the animal's scent, or perhaps using voice calls to halt or call off the pack. There are many and varied methods that the Sabs use, and this is just a few of them. Mink and otter hunting with packs of hounds in the UK is illegal. I repeat, it is illegal, yet still it continues. So, if you see what you believe to be a mink hunt on a river near you, you can report it to the hunt sabs by calling their tip-off line in complete confidence and the local group will be able to act upon your information. To call the hunt sabs if you see mink and otter or in fact any form fox or hare hunting in your area, please call 07 443 148 426. Let me repeat that again. The Hunt Sab tip off line number is 07 443 148 426. And do report anything you see that you think is suspicious or could be illegal hunting here in the UK. And that has been this week's Wildlife Matters Investigates. in the Wildlife Matters podcast where we can just sit back and relax with a few sounds of nature and wildlife and let's see I think this one's quite hard but let's see how many of you can guess the animal in this week's Wildlife Matters Mindful Moments enjoyed that as much as I did and how many of did um, guess which animal that was I will tell you now that I recorded that on a recent visit to Scotland and to save you any more guessing it was of course a pine martin yeah and that was this week's wildlife matters mindful moments
and welcome back and on this week's wildlife matters main feature we're going to be taking a look at the animal species that are being farmed for their fur even in today's modern age the use of animal fur for clothing is no longer a necessity the technology to create ethical humane materials for warm and fashionable clothing has long been available are we content then to make living creatures suffer and die just so that we can decorate our bodies in their fur that we don't need? I think not. 85% of all fur comes from just five species. These species that are farmed for their fur include rabbits, chinchillas, foxes, minks and raccoon dogs. All species are bred on commercial fur farms with the sole purpose of producing their valuable coats into trinkets and clothing for us. Clothing that we do not need. Allowing the inhumane torture of these animals for the sake of fashion is a shameful act. So let's take a look at the five species that are most commonly farmed for their fur. The American mink. It's a mustelid species native to North America. Although in more recent times, human activity has extended its range to much of Europe and South America. It is the only existing member of the Neovision genus since the extinction of the sea mink. The American mink usually feeds on rodents, fish, crustaceans, frogs and birds. And in certain areas of Europe, including the UK, it has been labelled as an invasive species because of the deterioration in water vole populations. Due to its fur though, over 50 million American mink are bred annually for the fur trade. Breeding happens in March and the kits around three to four are born on average in May. These kits are then vaccinated for botulism, distemper, enteritis and pneumonia which just gives some indication of the terrible, cruel, inhumane living conditions that these poor young animals are born into. For the best ones, well, they're kept as breeding stock for the following year, while the others will be killed in either November or December for their fur. Another species is the chinchilla. So that is the species chinchilla or the chinchilla lanigera. Chinchillas are crepuscular rodents, and there are two species. Chinchilla species has a shorter tail, a thicker neck and shoulders, and shorter ears than the Chinchilla lanigera. In their native habitats, chinchillas live in burrows or crevices in rocks. They're really agile animals that can jump up to six feet or 1.8 meters in height. And chinchillas eat plants, leaves, fruits, seeds and, and small insects in the wild. They live in social groups that are known as herds and these herds can range from around 10 to anywhere up to 100 individual members. This is both for social interaction as well as protection from predators and chinchillas have a lot of predators in the wild that include birds of prey, skunks, felines, snakes and canines. Chinchillas have a variety of defensive tactics, however, including spraying urine and releasing their fur if they are bitten. 
Chinchillas can breed at any time of the year and their gestation period is 111 days and that's far longer than most rodents. Due to the long pregnancy, chinchillas are born fully furred with their eyes open. However, their litters are small, with two being a normal litter. The international trade in chinchilla fur goes back to the 16th century. And the animal, whose name means little chincha, is named after the chincha people of the Andes. By the end of the 19th century, chinchillas were becoming rare. The fur trade has already driven one species of chinchilla into in extinction. However, the remaining two species are now endangered and extinct across much of their original home range. Back in 1923, when Matthias F. Chapman captured 11 wild chinchillas and then imported them back to the USA for breeding, did he really know then that that small population would be the ancestors of every chinchilla in the fur and pet trade today? What a horrific legacy if he did. The third animal is the fox. Familiar to many of you, Vulpus vulpus, or the red fox, is the most widely distributed species and it's present across the entire northern hemisphere, from the Arctic Circle right down to North Africa and from North America through Europe and into Eurasia. In the wild, red foxes feed on small rodents, although they may also target rabbits, birds, reptiles, invertebrates and even young ungulates. Fruit, berries and vegetables are also regularly eaten, and foxes are opportunistic foragers and hunters. Red foxes have their cubs in springtime. The average litter consists of four to six cubs. These cubs are born blind, deaf and toothless, with dark brown fluffy fur. The vixens will remain with the kits for two to three weeks as the kits are unable to thermoregulate, which means maintain their own body heat during this period. And the father's job is to make sure the mothers are fed. Foxes are very protective of their cubs. If a mother dies before the kits are independent, the father takes over as their provider. The kit's eyes open after around a two weeks. Their eyes are initially blue, but they change to amber at maybe four to six weeks and at the same time their coat will begin to change colour. During this time period their ears are erect and their muzzles begin to elongate and they won't reach adult proportions until they are around six to seven months of age. Captive red, red foxes come in a range of different colour mutations. A few of them occur naturally in wild populations around the world but the majority were created by man through selective breeding of foxes born in captivity that maybe had unusual coat colours or patterns or through the crossbreeding of foxes displaying specific colours. Some of the mutations display noticeable differences in comparison to a wild red fox, including either a larger or sometimes considerably smaller physical size they are much calmer in their behaviour and almost completely lack the musky smell. Many though suffer with genetic problems, also suffer with conditions such as haemophilia. Today around 100 different coat colours and patterns are listed by breeders 
that have been created over the course of around 300 years of intensively breeding foxes for the fur trade. Among these colour mutations, individuals are found displaying a slightly darker or lighter coat. Their legs, ears, eyes, tail and muzzle will be of different colour combinations. And this is so wrong because foxes, like humans, are completely individual and not one fox is the same as another. But these poor foxes have been bred purely for their colour of their fur to be used in the fur trade as human adornment. The raccoon dog and cat. In China, there is no punishment for anyone responsible for cruelly mistreating animals within the fur trade. Over two million cats and hundreds of thousands of raccoon dogs are put through awful conditions every year. Many of them are still alive when their skin is taken off to make garments and accessories such as trim for winter coats or boots and jackets, handbags and even stuffed toys. Because of this unethical practice, the United Kingdom and the United States banned importing, exporting or even the selling of items that included cat or dog fur way back in the year 2000, with the European Union introducing similar measures in 2009. In addition, Italy, France, Denmark, Greece, Belgium and also Australia have laws prohibiting imports of domestic dog and cat fur products although sales can still be facilitated under certain conditions. The main breed farmed for its fur though is the rabbit and the main species within that are Castorex and Chinchilla Rex. These beautiful, sentient animals are forced to endure a cycle of repeated breeding and suffering. At four weeks old, the kits are taken from their mothers who will wail for them day and night in vain the young kits are then confined to solitary, cramped cages with a floor space equal to that of just two shoe-sized boxes where they cannot stretch or even move about freely. Their incarnation can last for up to six months or until their winter fur has shed. Not surprisingly then, that the mortality rate is high and many, many succumb to respiratory ailments due to the insufferable conditions and overcrowding that they have. I mean, how long, really, can we let this continue? The breeding animals are caged and kept in captivity for up to three years with their lives reduced to the purpose of procreation. The young kits are cruelly taken from their mothers, separated and placed in a sterile nursery before being locked into their lonely cages just weeks later, where they are subjected to inhumane living conditions not fit for any animal. The rabbits are kept in barren wire mesh boxes, suffering until they shed their winter fur and are then unceremoniously killed for it. A sad truth is that the mortality rate for these caged rexes is shockingly high. But that's not it. See, the people who own the fur farms still have a greed and a desire to make more money. And they do that by even using the byproducts of the cruel fur farm business. The meat from fur farms is not normally eaten by humans, although many fur production countries do not make this compulsory. And therefore, the meat can and does 
find its way into the human food chain. The carcasses of skinned animals are used in various products such as pet food, animal feed, compost, fertilizer, paint, and even tires. Some of the carcasses are sent to animal sanctuaries, zoos, and aquariums just to feed other animals. In China, the carcasses are fed to the remaining animals on the fur farms without any consideration of the disease risk. And these practices are believed to be a potential source of the SARS-type virus infections. The faeces of these animals is also used as an organic fertilizer. Yes, it gets classified as organic because the source is natural, albeit from a fur farm where the animal is kept in captivity. This fertilizer is used on our food crops for human consumption. But that's not it. That's not all. Their body fat is turned into oils that are then used in soap, face moisturizers, and other cosmetic products. And many of those oils will find their way into your organic cosmetics. These poor animals are exploited throughout their short lives. Their fur and body parts are consumed by the fashion, cosmetic and clothing industries to produce products that allegedly make humans look better. Wildlife Matters Big believes we must put an end to this vile trade, which has no place in our modern world. There is simply no excuse for wearing the fur of a poor creature that suffered and died for nothing more than human vanity. And that has been this week's Wildlife Matters main feature. You know, those people in the fur trade, I mean, it's such a disgusting industry. How can they make money out of it? It is time to shut the fur trade down for good. That's what we say here at Wildlife Matters. Now, if you want to get in contact with us with any suggestions of things you'd like to hear or things you think we should be covering, then please do. Our email address is hello at wildlife-matters.org. That is hello at wildlife-matters.org. And before we go, I'd just like to say a huge thank you to those who are downloading podcasts, Apple, Spotify, and Amazon. We are at number three in the nature charts on all three of those platforms at the moment. And I mean, that's amazing. We're one series in. The podcast is um, about five months old. I can't thank you enough for your amazing support. So on the next Wildlife Matters podcast, we are going to be lifting the lid on the wildlife traps that are being used all around the UK, primarily by gamekeepers, and telling you which ones are legal, illegal, or illegal to use. Yeah, that really is a definition. And in Wildlife Matters Investigates, we are asking the question, are we, that's you and me, the British taxpayer, actually subsidizing wildlife persecution on our grouse moors yeah it really is a thing join us next time on the wildlife matters podcast to find out more about that but for now this is me nigel palmer your host wildlife matters signing off <laughs>